I, I can't help but feel like in, in, in this greater game of life, we are all puns. <laughs> oh, that's a better one. Um, we're just going to start with that. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I made up for my terrible 45 minutes of puns. <laughs> so my understanding is that puns are a really contentious issue within comedy. Yes. Although, funnily enough, one of the best comedians in this neck of the woods is a fellow by the name of David Green. Uh, David Green decided to invest in the pun. And he is the definition of mild-mannered. He is soft-spoken. Uh, he is English. And if you've ever seen uh, uh, like a, a cartoon of, 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 of a little monkey, that's kind of what David Green's face is like. I mean that as a compliment, I promise. Mm -hmm. But he has a, a, a sneaky, uneven smile that he uses to deliver pun after pun after pun after pun. And he's great at it. So he smiles after, or he smirks, half smiles after the pun? It's less that he smirks, because that would be insufferable. And it's less that he's like laughing at his own jokes, so much as there's something inside the heart of David Green that so loves puns <laughs> that his have you ever seen have you ever seen that footage of a um god is it uh, i forget which bridge it is but it's reacting to an earthquake so it just gets super wavy and so yeah, it's collapsing the, um, in itself the, the one outside of seattle yeah the tacoma narrows bridge yeah 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 yeah, yeah. uh not the full house bridge <laughs> that uh like when that starts like buckling together that's what his smile looks like it's endearing Oh, we've, we just missed the anniversary of the collapse. Oh. November 7th, 1940. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm sure your grandmothers remember where they were when they first saw that stock footage. I did in a Twizzlers ad. Yeah, that's really tasteless. Extremely, but that's where I first saw it. <laughs> the 90s were a very, it was a harder, edgier time, Chris. Uh, but going away from uh, edginess, yeah, there's David Green. And, and now I wish I could remember a single pun. I mean, that's the downside of spending so much time watching other comics and being the kind of comic who pays attention to other people's acts and, like, enjoys them and dissects what they're doing differently and, like, really uh, gets invested. Like, I, I, I pay attention to even comedians I kind of like when uh, when they're performing. And and I watch David Green a ton of times, and he's really funny and, and great, a super nice guy. But I can't remember a single pun of his for the life of me. But uh, a, a terrific punster who is beloved amongst uh, all comedians in Ontario that I've, I've met who know of him. I'm looking at his webpage right now, which in big letters says, Punniest Comedian in Canada. I, I, you know what? You won't find anyone. I'm sure, I'm sure he's waiting for an attack from, I don't know, Howie Mandel, but none, none shall triumph over David Green's puns. He's beyond Punderdome. Can't we just get beyond Punderdome? <laughs> we can't. So he's English. And when I was trying to think of comedians who use a lot of puns, I was mostly thinking of people from England. <laughs> I was thinking of, you know, Andy Zaltzman or Milton Jones. Is there one or... who isn't him? <laughs> Is there a pun-loving comedian who isn't Andy Zaltzman? Yeah. 
I mean, you just named one. But, um. Well, I, there's I've never seen David and Andy in the same room. And one is the logical opening act of the other, depending on where Andy is in his comedy and uh, cricketer uh, commentating uh, career. I uh, I am super curious which one of them is wearing the wig. <laughs> David David found in the guest room with Andy's Merkin. <laughs> uh, but yes, there, there, I, I guess there are a, a lot of funsters because uh, many of them show up on uh, Zaltzman's podcast, The Bugle, where I grew to know and love Zaltzman best. That's true. I didn't think of um, Alice Fraser, who's been uh, on a lot of recent episodes and has been bringing a very strong pun game to the Oh, my the God. Show. She's bringing a very strong everything to that She's show. She's amazing. She's absolutely yeah. amazing. John Oliver who, says I, answering my own question. <laughs> Alice Frazier for Prez of the Bugle. <laughs> do you know do you know Milton Jones? Milton Jones. He's on Mock the Week sometimes. Oh, um, let's see. Of all the panelists, they are as follows. Uh, <laughs> there, there, there is a mop top guy, a mumbly voiced guy who used to be a politician, um, guy who looks like Darian O'Brien, but who isn't. No, that that is Dar O'Brien. He's the host. Oh, okay. Wait, he's the host of Mock the Week now? Dar O'Brien, yeah. I think he's always oh. been the host. Oh, wasn't it that wasn't it that ginger guy? Andy Saltzman? No, he's the host of the Pugle. No, 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 no. You know that guy with the with the beard who's all like, ah, dead babies or whatever he said. Uh, no, uh Frankie Boyle used to be one of the team captains. Yes, he was a mainstay of Mock the Week. He was a mainstay for a while until he said something about <laughs> the Queen, I think. But that is classically English if that was the line he crossed. <laughs> Anyway, Milton Jones is, a, is apparently the second most frequent guest who is not a host. He wears very loud tropical shirts and has crazy hair. And his entire routine is based on those kind of quick one-liners, most of which are puns, hmm. which he's very – he's got a lot of them. He's very adept at them. But, you know, at a certain point, if you don't know them super well, you feel really uh, cagey about praising a comedian these days because <laughs> they might turn out to be horrible people. Yes, yes. Um uh, when I was a, when I was a kid, or, or uh, you know, I used to abbreviate things a lot, and so whenever I'm looking through my old journals, I'll see something like "I love CK" and I get really nervous. But then I remember it's me, so it means Crypt Keeper. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I was watching a bit of his, um, his some of his stand up on the YouTube's before we started recording. I also cannot remember any of his puns, but they are pretty great. He's got a very good. If you like that sort of thing, he's got a very quick, dry delivery of them. But that was what I was thinking about the smiling or the smirking. A lot of those kinds of punsters, they prefer deadpan expressions. So, yeah. so the idea of just smiling and reveling in them, which I guess is what Andy Zaltzman does. Yes. And and Zaltzman, I think, pulls this off brilliantly. It's why I'm, I'm talking about this while I'm staring directly into his dead eyes on the poster <laughs> that, uh, uh, that I got when uh, you and I went to see his uh, live show at the Second City last year. Or was that earlier this year? It was before, right before the election. So oh, a little so, over yeah. a year ago. Because he asked, yeah. he asked if any Americans were in the audience, and I was the only one. And he asked, and he told me I should vote for Trump. And I did not find that funny, and I still don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure Zaltzman wakes up, you know, in a cold sweat about that fucking joke. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my word. So, did you ever uh, dabble in punnery during your stand up career? um well did i ever oh yes 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 i did yes i did 
Je- Chris, there are jokes that are just for you. <laughs> <laughs> that we're going to now say on this podcast that has only only the best dozen or so listeners. <laughs> well, this yeah, this will alienate even them. Um, there was a joke that I would do just to find the people who would laugh at it. Mm. And is there any other reason for doing a joke? I suppose that's well for me. I, I think that's true because I always took to heart uh, Joel Hodgson's words about comedy writing, which is you know, uh, when writing a joke, you never think will people get this. You think the right people will get this, which I think is the best advice for any comedy person out there in the world. Absolutely. And huh, I I wrote I wrote this joke that made me laugh that I knew no one would get, and I also knew was very dumb. But it was the kind of dumb that made me smile. I was like, oh, I have to do this. It was like a dare to 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 do it. Uh, and so I would sometimes even dare to open a, a, a set uh, with this, which I will now, which is a joke I, I guarantee you will not like. <laughs> and, and to all the listeners, uh, to all those who can hear my voice, one, beware the fog, and two, you will hate this. <clears throat> You ever sit down, watch yourself a Treat Williams movie, and think, this is a treat. (laughs) And what's great is that, inevitably, amongst the dork lords who see that a comedy show is happening and think either A, I want to participate, B, I want to see that, or C, I want to watch that and seethe because I'm not participating in it. Mm. Those are your three audiences. Uh there'd inevitably be a like small percentage that howled at that. But you're talking about like two people in a room of like 20 who, and and the rest of whom, the other 18 are angry. (laughs) I want to talk specifically about something. And, and it goes back to, uh, it goes back to the idea that also there's a rhythm and, and a musicality to jokes. And it's one of the things that I find interesting because like, I find it very difficult to talk about music in a lot of ways mm-hmm. because it's all like magic to me and it's one of the reasons why i have a lot of questions about your music career and your continued musicianship uh <laughs> because i don't even know what that would be called however uh this is like this is like sorcery to me but i know rhythm i know rhythm when i hear it i know like i sometimes hear music and and and, and think about ways where it's like oh but this is why it's not working or this is why it is working and have a very vague layman sense of it which i think a lot of people have and when telling that joke the way it has to work is for uh, the 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 if it's going to work at all and i admit it is a terrible joke that i love that i made uh it it is it's like being proud of your stupidest child chris (laughs) but it always has to hit this falsetto note at the end you have to say Oh, that is a treat. It has to be like right. that. That right. da, 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 da. It has to be like that to the point where I would sometimes wander into disapproving audiences, repeating the punchline, but making sure that it has that exact same rhythm. Just walking into the crowd going, that, that is a treat. This is a treat. Over and over again with only my facial expression changing as I realize the horror that they hate this. <laughs> But not changing my expression, or not, or sorry, not changing my my tone of voice, 
at all and trying to keep that as rhythmically close to the first utterance of the punchline as possible. So you never tried telling that joke and ending it with your uh, movie trailer vocal fry voice? <laughs> no. Perhaps perhaps that would have been way more pleasant for people if that's as soothing a sound as I find it. Why, this is a treat. <laughs> this summer, a treat. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, like that is entirely what I responded to. I have never heard of Treat Williams. <laughs> it just sounds like a joke. It didn't take me long. Uh, like the, the punchline came before I was able to solve the joke. <laughs> I like Moriarty tasking you with my many jokes. <laughs> well, that's part of Chris, what jokes sometimes Chris, are. <laughs> Chris, this podcast ends with both of us falling over Reichenbeck Falls. <laughs> So yeah, so I didn't under so I didn't fully understand the joke, but I did respond to the rhythm of it to the and I and I understood that the turn uh, from the person's name, the person's strange name, mm-hmm. to the other way that you were using it in the second half of the joke, and I, you know, so so it really was very much a sense of the rhythm and probably also the musicality. But I'm I was I'm just thinking of it in terms of the rhythm of it, like it came. The, the turn came fast enough for me to get it and enjoy it. Uh, in fact, if I had known who Treat Williams was, I wonder whether I would have enjoyed the joke more or less because of that. <laughs> I, I think even amongst the few people who would dare enjoy such a joke, uh, there were those who laughed more at the setup and those who just enjoyed the the musicality and, and weirdness of, of the joke and the play on words of it. But the idea of sitting down and enjoying a Treat Williams movie is also <laughs> somewhat absurd. I suppose so. I mean, I'm looking at his wiki page right now. And it seems like he <laughs> was in like, some reasonable movies. Movie. <laughs> Mulholland Falls, people like that. I don't know. Do they? I don't Are they? you thinking I, of Mulholland Drive? I am. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he knows the whole mall and falls is. Well, that's what happens when you haven't seen it. He was in a journey to the center of the earth. He <laughs> made a TV uh, movie. <laughs> yeah, not the one with the rock and Luis Guzman and not the one with a stop motion creatures. He was in a movie, straight for video movie called Gale Force, which I assume was a Gale Storm biopic. Oh, that's that's about her joining the Navy. <laughs> So a lot of people don't like puns, and why? Why do you think they fear the pun? Why do I think they fear the pun? Is is this is this your start to to your pun run, or is this a question? No, the pun run comes after the conversation. This is an actual question. Well, that's just it. It sounded so much like the setup for a bit that, <laughs> no, that I was no. almost afraid to answer. This is a this is a bit free zone. This part okay. of the podcast. Oh, whew. thank God! All bits will be clearly signposted. Well, I think. Uh, Chris. Uh, one is that uh, let's consider the source of puns. Musty old books, uncles, who of course don't have uh, spouses of their own or children. So reminders that uh, life is fleeting and that you might end up dying alone. But lastly, the most terrifying of all, and indeed the first source of my enjoyment of puns, the Crypt Keeper. <laughs> and to this, I present to you, Chris Puma, a contest. Well, a game. I have devised a list of Crypt Keeper puns, one of which is false and created by me. Ooh. This, this by the way, we're going to signpost, this is a bit. 
I suppose this is a bit. But I present to you the following scenarios from episodes of Tales from the Crypt or something I made up. And I want you to see if you can decipher which one is one I made up for goofs. Okay, just one of you just made one of them up. Yes. And I was yeah. very tempted to make all of them up. Sure. It's only natural. <laughs> or make none of them up. And see, but instead only one. And now the test begins. These the following scenarios may or may not have been bookend segments of Tales from the Crypt. <clears throat> I shall read the Cryptkeeper lines and stage direction. Oh question. Should I imitate the Cryptkeeper or not? Follow your bliss. Okay. <clears throat> Interior the Crypt Day. The Cryptkeeper is in a courtroom. <laughs> He is banging a gavel and wearing a barrister's wig. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, Fright Court is now in session, he says. <laughs> you are sentenced with having watched too much Tales from the Crypt, with which you may serve horrid time. We are now asking you to plea. How do you plead? And then the Crypt Keeper turns off camera. Revealing, as the camera motions, over, that there is four skeletons hanging by a noose. The camera slowly goes back to the Crypt Keeper. What do you know, says the Crypt Keeper? A hung jury! <laughs> That's scenario one. Mm-hmm. Scenario two. <laughs> the Crypt Keeper is doing stand-up. He has aged George Carlin ponytail of the 90s variety. My word. He opens with this. My ghoul friend is crazy. She asked me one day, wouldn't it be nice if I were to wear something long and flowing? So I threw her in the Mississippi River. Then the Crypt Keeper shrugs and looks to the audience. The Crypt Keeper is getting married to a skeleton in a bridal gown. The Crypt Keeper says to his would-be bride, Ah, this is my favorite part of the scaremony. The throwing of the bouquet. (laughs) The Crypt Keeper throws the flowers, which then fly past both sections, which are labeled hide and gloom. (laughs) The flowers land on one of the gloomsmen, knocking over his skull head. Cryptkeeper is now dressed as Billy Idol in the cutaway and says, It's a nice sleigh for a fright deading. Ooh, the triple pun pile on there. Oh, yes. Lastly, the Cryptkeeper is on a mock-up of Late Night with David Letterman. He is interviewing Whoopi Goldberg. The Cryptkeeper says, Whoopi, it is an honor. I loved you in The Killer Purple. <laughs> Chris, which of these is made up? This is harder than you think, isn't it? It is. There are. All right. So let me say right now that if if you did the marriage one, the number three, Mm -hmm. I'm very impressed. That's a that that's quality. That is TV level punsmanship. That is absolutely peak crypt. (laughs) Is that your final answer? Do you believe 
No, no, no. I think that's a real one. I think I would would not be able to write such a such. I think I would be quite impressed with you. But and I'm not saying you're not able to. But I'm just saying that seems like a that seems like it took an entire writer's room full of people to do. (laughs) Yeah, the best minds of Tales from the Crypt Productions. Exactly. Like they were saving up for that one. Uh, I am a little uh, so so. I was a little unclear from the talk show episode whether, in fact, it was the real Whoopsie Goldberg. <laughs> Let's say be... for for the, for the purposes that it is right. So that I mean that seems unlikely. Uh, the Fright Court one, absolutely. That's that seems real because you know time and place. There's no reason why you wouldn't make a a night court joke <laughs> at the time when when the Tales from the Crypt was was first age, and the stand up one is also so so the stand up one and the talk show one are both uh, are the two that I'm feeling a bit suspicious of. I see. Uh, <laughs> just because the stand up joke is really weird. <laughs> uh, but the talk show, like the idea that Whoopi Goldberg is actually there, seems like. I mean, that just seems like that's that's quite a get <laughs> for, for Tales from the Crypt. I don't know. What? I don't know why Whoopsie would be doing there. Oh, I don't know what she's promoting. I don't know. I don't remember there being there being famous people on Tales from the Crypt, but I was not. I was not an avid viewer. I admit. All right, I am going to vote that the stand-up one is yours. No, uh, I made up the wedding one. Whoa! And I made it up 15 minutes before we recorded. So what was Whoopi? All right, first off, well done. But secondly, what was Whoopi Goldberg doing there? Uh, Whoopi Gold. Okay, Tales from the Crypt. That's where your memory cheats. Tales from the Crypt frequently got A-list guest stars. Huh. Yeah, there's a, a picture that I tend to post from time to time uh, where Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Crypt Keeper are lifting weights. <laughs> um, but yeah, Whoopi Goldberg, especially... Well, not not so much now, but in 1992 was a huge get, and yeah, sure, yeah. she she was in an episode. Oh my god, I've got pictures of it now. Yeah, yep, that is that's legit. That's quite an elaborate set. Yes, yes, it is. It's a really good bit. Do you want to watch Crypt Keeper pun videos? I'll send you some. <laughs> Maybe, um, but uh, that still doesn't answer the question of why people don't like don't like puns a lot of people have like really visceral reactions to them they really they really feel outraged by them actually i think i have and it ties sort of into my answer earlier you know puns come from family members but they also come from like kid shows and teachers so i think it's the first understandable form of humor that kids kind of get Hmm. and can parrot back and it's usually like the punchlines you would get in like bazooka joe comics and stuff uh, maybe. I think that there's a sort of absurdist humor that kids get first, but I'm not, uh, I don't, I don't hang out with kids as often as some people do. Uh, <laughs> uh, I also think that there are just a lot of people who get, who get really upset about fun. Th- well, yes, but about the way that language gets broken in puns. I think sometimes a lot of the reaction is just like, people who have a very specific sense of how language should operate and they get really upset because puns don't work the way that they think language should like like words don't shouldn't do that stop doing that with words that's meaningless Hmm. uh is the kind of uh, response to puns that that i've that i've heard before oh see that's that's unusual because like what i like most about a lot of comedy is how words can be broken up into these seemingly wrong parts 
for lack of a better phrase, wrong parts, and yet still create a coherent idea that you understand. Mm-hmm. Like nonsense terms, like those great flyers where all of the uh, all of the grocery store items have been given these absurd, surreal names, like you know, smiling devils for like a can of Vienna sausages and things like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, but you like puns as well. So <laughs> but, that's true. But I think that's why I think I've stumbled upon why I like puns is that they break language in a way that I really like, albeit not in the same way. So I also, so also that is the sort of thing that I was always interested in with poetry, that it wasn't about sort of beautiful imagery or raw emotion. It was about language breaking and what happens with the, when the fragments of language are collected together. And so a lot of people who encounter the type of poetry that I have written or have enjoyed mm-hmm. have had a really that same kind of visceral reaction where they're like, but what is this? It doesn't mean anything. What? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. But how doesn't it mean something? Like, what is it doing in not meaning something? I actually think that the pun is the kind of the foundational unit of poetry. Uh, as well as one of the foundational units of comedy, like there's something there's something about how the pun operates, how it how it works with language and how it how it disrupts and and changes things and shows things in a new and hopefully unexpected light. That is what a lot of other types of comedy that aren't pun based are also trying to achieve. Yeah, and I think also maybe some people are maybe some people are averse to puns. Because it's easy to make one, like, all puns are kind of bad in the sense that they're like sour candies. They're a pleasant form of pain. (laughs) Puns are (laughs) angels to some and demons to others. Sure. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) But there is something wonderful about this slow realization of a pun. There's something like you are there and 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 you've been you've been fed a lie uh, of a sentence and then you figure out it's like wait a minute the criminal's been in my grasp all along and you drop your coffee cup in slow motion as you realize it was a pun all along like there is something wonderful about the moment of realization like realization is the real excitement of any joke mm. catching on. There's nothing there's nothing better as an audience member when you're at a comedy club when you can't stop snickering or can't stop yourself from snickering during the setup because you know where it's going to go and you're delighted or at least you have a really mm-hmm. good suspicion and you like where it's going like it pleases your brain but you got there like a second early and that's part of the fun so there's this writer uh this french writer from the early 20th century named Raymond Roussel who was really weird he gets lumped in with the Dadaists a lot, but he oh. did not. He did not like that. He did not think, or the oh. Surrealists, but he did not think of himself as in that at all. He actually thought he was writing pop novels that would be read by the millions. Even though, wow, did that not happen? <laughs> One of his techniques for writing novels, he wrote a book towards the end of his life called "How I Have Written Some of My Novels," or some of my books, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, One of his techniques was to write a story by taking a phrase. So one of the examples that he talks about is Les Lettres du Blanc sur les Bandes du Vieux Billard, which means roughly the white letters on the cushions of the old billiard table. 
Mm-hmm. And then he takes that phrase, he changes the letter B in billard to P in pillard. So he wants to end at the phrase, les lettres du blanc sur les bandes du vieux pillard. The letter is written by a white, like a du blanc, by a white man, about the hordes of the old plunderer. Hmm. So he's playing with a few different meanings and how those words change when you, when you switch them around. Right. Neither of those phrases appear as such in the story. Oh. Those are the, that, that's describing the opening scenario and the ending scenario. And then he writes a story that connects the one to the other. So there's this deep set pun logic underneath it that is not on the surface, that you never actually get to hear the two phrases that are the pun. And in fact, there's no clue that that's, why, that's how he's writing the story. That's entirely hidden. But instead, you end up with this really strange story that for no entirely clear reason is going from this one scenario to this other scenario and then feels like it's done within its own logic. It may not actually feel that way if you're reading it expecting a normal kind of short story, but that is... That is why wh- how the short story itself thinks that it's done. And it, he ends up, all of his texts have this really strange, it's really strange to read them. It's kind of difficult sometimes to read them, but if mm-hmm. you can sort of sit yourself down and force yourself to read them, or if you can get into the groove of what he's doing, they're these very strange and uncanny stories about weird marvels that just appear one after the other with no obvious connection or plot, but with all this really deep pun logic that you don't have the access to that's propelling this strangeness forward. Obviously, he was super unpopular. He did not become, he was not, <laughs> he was not the J.K. Rowling of his time. But uh, uh, is it Rowling or Rowling? I always forget. I think it's, I think it's, JK, I think it's J.K. Rowling. Now, Chris, are you saying that, uh, what was this man's name again? His name is Raymond Roussel. Now, now are you saying that Mr. Roussel died penniless? Uh, no, he, <laughs> no, because he was independently wealthy. Oh, he was in a the kind very, of man who would make puns. Very wealthy and eccentric fop who <laughs> basically invented the Winnebago, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> he didn't like seeing people, and he liked, but he liked traveling. So he built like a mobile home that he could close all the windows so that he didn't have to see anything at all. <laughs> the guy is amazing. Like I totally recommend checking reading up on him. But, I will. But but this is a this is a case where somebody is is thinking through the logic of the pun to create something that you can't figure out what it is, but there is still at least for some some people a kind of pleasure to the to the final text that emerges from it that's using this pun logic even if it never really lets you know what the key is. Hmm. That does sound like the idea, because that's what's kind of interesting is that it, it, it almost sounds like a cipher code in a way, like almost appreciating the, the works they made, uh, you, you would almost need to know that sentence or come to understand what that sentence was that inspired the work. And that's really appealing. Now, that sounds almost more detached in a form of enjoyment, and, and maybe it is. But that sounds really fascinating. Like I would love to read this guy's work. Yeah, I would. Uh, you could also argue that the work becomes less exciting once you have the key, because it ex- hmm. sort of explains away all the weirdness. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but we do not have all the keys to all this. He didn't use this method all the time, oh. and for all this, for the stories that we have, which he probably did use this method, we don't have all the keys to those stories. That's a damn shame. Perhaps, perhaps some daring adventurer should go and find the lost keys of Raymond Roussel. <laughs> the other side of not liking puns, 
is the kind of assault version of puns, such as the Andy Zaltzman pun run special. Um, <laughs> have you ever listened to the first episode of Andy's sister, Helen Zaltzman's podcast, The Illusionist? Yes. Which is about puns and interviews Andy and is basically about how they grew up with puns. Their dad did a lot of puns, but like she never liked the puns. <laughs> And part of them is because Andy does these long pun runs of, on a single topic where he's just throwing out pun after pun after pun. And the story follows this kind of Roussel logic that doesn't – like the stories that he's weaving these puns into seem to not go anywhere or go in this really relentless – like they don't follow the structures of a story. They follow the structures of let the setup for the next pun. And if you really want the story to follow the logic of a story, that's going to be grating – Right. And that seems to be what she, uh, how she experiences these, this, this form of punning. <laughs> now, she, they also interview, uh, or she also interviews the father, right? Right. She interviews her father, yeah. Who is also a delightful uh, punster. I think that there's such a craft in making a good pun. And like I said, there's a bit of a, a comedy equivalent of a BDSM relationship in the making and inflicting and receiving of puns <laughs> pleasure and pun that 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 it it becomes this this kind of complete experience it's 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 like it's like the joy and power you can get from a joke that is funny but is still in bad taste so you get the laugh, but the, mixed in with the oh sound. Well, that sounds like a perfect setup for the next segment. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> You're Not Funny is brought to you by Megaphonic FM. Go to megaphonic.fm and check out all our fancy little podcasts, including It's Just a Show, a deep dive into cult TV show, Mystery Science Theater 3000. This time around in the joke section of the show, the topic is puns on the run. And in fact, we are going to be starting with something that was cut from the last episode of It's Just a Show. That's a very kind way of putting it. Do you want to, do you want to set up the clip? I, I shall indeed. Well, this famous clip, as part of my junket. Uh-huh. So we were, we were covering the MST3K episode about Hamlet where they riff on a movie version of Hamlet that is quite dour. And they are playing in a few different levels, but they're trying to derive comedy from Shakespeare. And I thought it would be fitting to mirror aspects of the episode. Like there is a Beatles reference in the episode. There is a Beatles reference in my summary of the movie. And one of the ways I wanted to do that was I should engage in a long bit of wordplay as a scribe known as Shakespeare would have. And I decided to go on a lengthy pun run using all of the Shakespeare play titles in order uh, in an elaborate bit about reading the first review of Hamlet. And it is a bit that is so painful that it had to be removed from the episode. Uh, unless we lose uh, listenership in droves. But where this is a podcast with a smaller audience, it's here for you in its entirety. Hamlet is considered a classic now. I think that's safe to say. Mm. 
Maybe one of the most important pieces of literature ever created in English. Yeah, they say that now. But you know what? I, 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 frankly, I found some comments about the production from the very first production uh, that I have here on parchment that I've just looked up. <laughs> okay. So I've, I've just printed that out. Now, this actually comes. It's not a it's not a professional review as far as I can tell. Or, or, or maybe it, it was published that way. But it had kind of a um, constant reader thing where it's addressed to someone. Because <clears throat> it reads as follows. Dear Ida. Ophelia, a comely lass, not so. The man playing this girl was a comely of errors. Why, the plot made my friend Henry sick in two parts, then in three parts, then just one part, and gave Richard the turds. (laughs) I just can't take my brain out to enjoy this senseless violence that this play has. Any success marks a castration of playgoers, a taming of the shrewd. And Ida... Must I hear the main character's name over and over again? Hamlet, Hamlet, the title, Hamlet, the title, over and over again. On and onicus, title, on and onicus. And I confess, my attention began to Romeo, and you yet confound me, Shakespeare. I think you and Richard Burbage are full of it. You are two gentlemen of Bologna. Burbage is not a great English actor. I know he's French. He's known as Richard LeBurr. Ah, yes. LeBur may have won the groundlings with his undercooked ham, but for this critic, it was love LeBur's lost. My colleagues left. It goes on. It goes on. My colleagues left during various acts. For example, Richard II. Wise choice. I'd have been better off going to our local sex dungeon, where the gentlemen and ladies perform in full armor. They're all knights. At least there I could enjoy a midsummer's nighted ream. Best sex dungeon in all the kingdom. Kingdom. Uh, kingdom. <clears throat> that must be a typo. Anyway, goes on. Dear Ida continues. Uh, where was I? Yes. Haha, <laughs> my friends. Henry Force parts one and two down, but with Richard gone, Henry fft and spit and left much ado about nothing. Uh, the twelfth night of this production was unpolished. He had never seen a play like this, but he had seen a zoo like it. God. It's, it goes on. It's midsummer, and I miss July Caesars for this. I am let of drinks and merry wines and winds or uh, what words describe my experience. Toil and cross, Ida. Those are the words. It goes on. Uh. This play is bloated, Ida. <laughs> it's all swell that ends swell. I'll tell too. I don't even know what that means. A man's man. A real mister for the mess here. Kinglier than the others, Max, I bet. And the dinner served at this globe was atrocious. And aunt and only Cleopatra could look dignified eating this dinner of Coriolanus. Well, Ida, it's time for our next trip. Time on for Athens. Mm. Richard and Henry are coming, too. They won't miss... Their pair, uh, they won't miss their pair of calls to Athens. Oh, I shall need drink and play music to get this play out of my system. Cymbaling and drinking all my winter ales. Gotta go, Tempest Fugit. Ah, the play's long done, Ida. Henry's still sick, but Richard's fine. Perhaps it's just something Henry ate. And that just goes on like that. Hey, Adam, Thank you. you? (laughs) Thank you. I don't know uh, the research that I do for this program. Where, where did Adam go? 
I, I think we've been replaced by Andy Zaltzman. <laughs> now, from what I understand, these sorts of reviews, uh, they were uh, they were actually like put up on clothing, line, clothing lines. These comments were all online. And uh, so the <laughs> very first comment that people would put online, uh, I'm just seeing it, it's from a local groundling, and it just says, first, but spelled F-I-R-S-T-E. Okay. Thank you. Now, Chris, I understand that you also have some puns for us. I have a response. Oh, no. First off, before we get to the pun run, I will say that this is not a show for children. And this episode, or this upcoming pun run, more than usual. All right, here goes. So unlike you, Adam, I never did a lot of theater work. And when I did walk the boards, I usually went for, you know, smaller roles, like roles that faded into the background. I didn't want to be center stage. I'm not interested in chewing the scenery. I'm just not a big ham. Let me tell you, though, about this one actor I met when I was in a show back in Portland. I miss Portland this time of year when the days get short and the rain starts to fall and the sky gets as cloudy as, well, a cloud. I mean, you really have to be ready for the weather this time of year in Portland. It's cold and damp. Not as cold as, like, Francis cold, but still cold and damp. And so I recommend you wear about 12 t-shirts, one on top of the other. Yeah, pro tip, you can keep really cozy if you decide to layer tees. Or, if you're a woman, I'm told that you can get the same effect if you exchange about five of those t-shirts for ten bras. Oh, but yeah, I was telling you about this actor. So, there are a lot of great people in Portland, but there are also a few creeps. And this guy was one of them. He was from a town in Oregon called Grants Pass. His name was Rick, and he said he'd moved to Portland to become an actor. But what he was really obsessed with was the local sex workers. It was kind of gross. Like, he kept going on about how Portland had, quote, a really optimal client-to-whore ratio. And Rick was really into how many pagans there were in Portland. And so odds were the next prostitute he hired would be a pagan. He'd get to, quote, bang some eager druid. Yeah, gross. It was clearly a power trip. And he was always like, oh, you gotta let the hoe feel you coming. At the last minute, you gotta pull out and leave her with a splooshy anus. Finally, I was like, Jesus, Rick, grow up. You're revolting, man. Damn. They're women. They're people. Just because they're sex workers, you can't treat them like that. And he was like, baloney, us dudes gotta stick together. What's wrong with you? You got a lip dick? You got a rubber nard or what? He's like, go back to your high school sweetheart, your dinner in a movie, your trite and corny liaisons. See where it gets you. When I pay for a blowjob, I get it when I want it, how I want it. And let me tell you, that Hummer's hella sweet. Look, the dude was gross. I tried to talk him out of his position, to fill him with guilt and sternly lecture him, but he was beyond redemption. I mean, sad fact is, you can't rein all dopes in. Anyway, the play we were in wasn't very successful. It just wasn't the thing. And he didn't last very long in the Portland theater scene, and soon he was going back home. And while Portland had its share of creeps, I bet he felt way more at home with the other bros and grants pass. (laughs) I was... Waiting. <laughs> that was all the named characters in Hamlet for you. <laughs> Sadly, no grave digger. He does not get a name. So I, I tried to. I thought about shoehorning him in for you, but uh, no, but alas, yeah, because yeah, you know, in certain versions of the script, he is just chief clown, and the one I played in that stupid Hamlet production I was in was other clown. <laughs> Terrible. See, it's just a show for details. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, <laughs> so, how do you feel? Having, <laughs> I, 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 and this is actually something I do want to know. In the creation of that pun run, as bits were coming together and as you were straining to make sure that everything had a place in it, all of them could be named off like that, how, how did you feel? How did it feel to make all those puns, Chris? Well, it felt pretty sweet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it felt hella sweet. Anyway, uh, so the only tricky thing was when I started, when a bun- when I came, basically, when I came up with the horror ratio bit, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, like, I'm not comfortable with the direction these puns are turning, so I need to put them in someone else's mouth and then condemn them. Right? Yes, yes. Your regular uh, Jeff Dunham. Je- regular <laughs> Jeff Punham. <laughs> hey Um, yes. <laughs> the other thing I was trying to think of um was whether or not to do the Andy Zaltzman thing of really underline the bad puns or to just let them go by. And I decided to let them go by just because I know you had underlined them and it would give me a chance to hear the two styles back to back and to think about what that would be like. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, on that style technique. Well, I think it suits when the thing you're doing is bad. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, which one suits what the thing you're doing is bad? Underlining them. Oh, yes. Because if, if you are, if you are bringing misery, well, don't, don't try to get through it. Let's all simmer in it. (laughs) <laughs> and that's what I found is that despite, which I think if we listen to the archive recording, which listeners will do now, uh, or have already done rather, uh, there is an initial fine reaction to this pun run until it's revealed through sheer persistence, Chris, that it is a pun run and not just a couple. <laughs> and as a reaction, which admittedly, now I have bombed in front of lots of people before. So bombing, <laughs> bombing to no one, you know, just hearing silence on 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 your headphones while you're recording a podcast is nowhere near as bad as bombing in front of people. So you can really enjoy bombing. And I knew about two jokes in. It's like, oh, this isn't going to work, and I've got at least three more minutes of this. <laughs> so I thought, A, I definitely have to underline it. And I also had to add, I think, something to the bit of, if I recall correctly, and again, we'll consult the archive audio for this, is I keep repeating, I keep repeating the phrase, it goes on. <laughs> yes. I keep using that phrase because that becomes a kind of supplemental joke reactions and and kind of a bit of a frame for the thing to compensate for the piss poor quality of the thing yeah i wonder i wonder how that bit would go over live i wonder how that would work (laughs) i'll reprise it for it's just a tour 2019 (laughs) i mean maybe maybe people will stumble upon this and be angry it wasn't included and will request it and yet who knows who knows (laughs) what could happen with that bit That'll be our first T-shirt. Is that bit printed in its entirety, exactly. like Fiona Apple's one album? <laughs> I think I think it's got a a. I think you should send that bit off to the New Yorker. <laughs> uh, what else? How else did you feel writing your writing your pun run? Well, I was about to say, like I felt I felt pretty magical, but I was also I ended up doing it not anywhere near the way I had planned it because, as we had talked about post pod. I had 
planned on writing a Shakespeare-themed pun run several days before the podcast recording so that I could nail it (laughs) and make something really painful and, and, and wonderful. But instead, I lost track of time, as I often do. And ended up writing it an hour before. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I guess there was something comforting in knowing that that's exactly how Andy does it. Right. <laughs> More or less. But that's not that's not how I, a mere novice, perhaps should have approached it. But it was not intentional. I just lost track of time and I thought, no, this bit's just too good. <laughs> and... I pressed on, and I totally thought it was worth doing. And to me, what felt right about it was just, I often think about the episodes of It's Just a Show having a reflection of the episodes that they are about, or the show itself. Mm -hmm. And I like that there are things in the podcast that quietly or loudly mirror aspects of the show. And the idea of, one, going out of my comfort zone to do... A pun run, which is not a world I usually play in, despite my apparent um, uh, uh, talents for writing Crypt Keeper sequences. <laughs> that was a way, not just for me to to take a chance, but take a big chance. I mean, you know, in within the context of the podcast, at least, to do something very different, just as they were doing something very different and out of their comfort zone for the episode. And I thought it's like, oh, that's just too that's too rich an opportunity. Even if it doesn't work, it's so worth doing. Mm. And having done stand-up and other forms of comedy, and also auditioning as an actor, uh, for one, uh, like you, you're so you're so used used to and deadened to the concepts of failing and <laughs> humiliation that the idea of oh, a bit you just wrote didn't work very well was like so low stakes for me. Right. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, I've had bits fail all the time. Who cares? Uh, <laughs> like, that was fine. So I, I felt like I had nothing to lose. I felt the only people who had anything to lose <laughs> were listeners and my podcast partners. Yeah. Hmm. Well, but now we've brought it here. It's found a home. <laughs> Welcome, listeners, to It's Just a Show, to this other little podcast. <laughs> yep an orphaned it's just a show bit <laughs> good night ladies good night <laughs> uh may a flight of puns sing thee to thy rest <laughs>